It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello. Welcome to the second last edition of the Beyond Zero Science and Solutions show. I'm Kay Wenigal and Carly Dober joins me remotely by the studios of 3CR Melbourne. The show is syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. We have some very sad news to share with you. Our show has unexpectedly been axed. This show has been going for over 10 years and according to your feedback has been a great vehicle for informing people about the evolution of solutions to the wicked problem of climate change. If you're interested in finding out about our future directions, send us an email on climateinsiders at gmail.com. That's one word, climateinsiders at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and love to hear any ideas that you have. To finish off with a bang, our final two shows are with a person who describes himself as a pragmatic idealist. Peter Kalmus is a NASA scientist who has achieved amazing things in the climate space in a pretty short period of time. Not only is he an American climate scientist, astrophysicist, writer and climate activist, he has co-authored the award-winning book Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. He's founded the website noflyclimatesci.org and co-founded the app Earth Hero Climate Change. Peter, please tell us about the Climate Up Project. You know, I was just thinking that it's weird that there aren't climate ads. I mean, what is a climate ad? Just anything that raises awareness, that says it's really happening, that says it's urgent, that explains what it is, that explains solutions. And maybe most importantly, that connects emotionally with an audience, right? So it could be a could be something on the internet. That's what we've been doing so far. We've been making short ads that go out on social media. But eventually, if we get bigger, if it catches on and we get some funding, it could go on television and radio, boards. Who knows? Maybe we can have like some kind of lawn sign campaign. The idea is just to raise awareness. Because I still, as a climate scientist, I still feel that there's a huge disconnect between the science and how dramatically concerning it is, if you get down into it, and what the public perceives and how concerned the public is. What's happening? What are the parts of this that are going to be painful in the future? What's the solution space look like for this? I think there's just so much to discuss that isn't being discussed. In my opinion, the mainstream media has largely let the world down on climate. But even more importantly, they're limited because their goal isn't to make an emotional connection with people. And that's sort of what ads are supposed to do. So I just thought it was really weird that there wasn't any sort of climate ad project, maybe funded by some big foundation or by some coalition of green NGOs or something. There just wasn't anything really out there. And for a couple of years, I've felt this big, big void. I'm like, why isn't there anything like that? And so then I just finally put out a call on Twitter and said, why isn't there something, some project that's making climate ads? 
And the response was pretty great. And we quickly built a team of half a dozen volunteers just from that. And they're fantastic. And now it's grown to, I don't know, maybe about 15 people. And there's just a core of that group that just can crank out ads really fast. And there's, you know, there's comedians in there and there's writers and there's producers. And it's been a lot of fun. Here in Australia, we have an organisation called Juice Media, and their mantra is keeping our government honest. Is that the sort of thing that you're aiming towards? Well, you know, I kind of discovered them, I think, in that original Twitter thread, somebody mentioned them, and that's how I found out about them. And so we, we talk sometimes with them. We haven't collaborated with them directly, but they're fantastic. I think that the Climate Ad Project is not very limited in what it can do. So, you know, I think we we want to have funny ads. We want to, we've definitely had a lot of ads that hold the U.S. government to account. One of our biggest ads was when Amy Coney Barrett was being confirmed to the Supreme Court. And, you know, in her confirmation hear, hearing, she explicitly denied the reality of climate change, which was, you know, which as a climate scientist makes my head pretty much explode. So we we did a short climate ad about that, where we just took that footage from her confirmation hearing and then kind of spliced it into this very somber discussion from a climate scientist who was talking about what's going to come in the future and with footage of what's happening right now with climate change. So I think that that was a great, stood in this intersection of a current event and hitting that news cycle, but also just an ad that really captured, I think, a truth that resonated with a lot of people. I think there's a lot of room for humor in climate ads because you have this really strong, I think, cognitive dissonance where part of our brains know that there's this emergency and this really important thing. And then this much bigger part of our brain sees everyone else acting like there's no problem. You know, there's this really strong bystander effect where we're all kind of looking around at each other and being like, well, if it's really such such an emergency, how come you're still flying? How come you're still doing this? How come you're not making these changes? And that's keeping us all from, I think, kind of collectively treating this like the emergency it is. And something about that cognitive dissonance, I think, can lead to some funny ads. Like one of the series we're working on now, I personally feel that carbon offsets are a bunch of they're crap. They're completely dishonest, right? They're like indulgences from the Catholic Church in medieval time. You know, people feel guilty. And so they pay a little bit of money and then they can do their high emitting things like flying in planes without feeling guilty. But it's, you know, if you drill down into it, it's you start looking at the details and you start thinking about human nature and how there's all these charlatans that are going to capitalize and make money on that guilt, right? And it's perfectly natural for them to start these companies for carbon offsets and start validation services for carbon offsets to make them look all official and put seals on them. It's just human nature. So we have an ad campaign we want to do about murder offsets, you know, like we'll have live action and somebody will murder somebody and be like, the cop will come in and be like, it's okay. You know, I paid this serial killer not to murder for two weeks or something, or maybe fidelity offsets. So there's all kinds of a whole series we could do that sort of show how really how absurd carbon offsets really are because we all know we have to stop burning fossil fuels that's what's causing climate breakdown which is all around us especially in australia and the western u.s so i live in los angeles and we had our moment about a year after you guys when uh the whole western coast of the united states was burning down last september and uh, one of the fires is five miles from me and it was just a visceral sort of full body experience to experience that heat wave and 
you know, that, the heat wave directly set off all these fires. And then you have a month of living in this smoke. And it's some places it was like smoking a pack a day habit. And the thing that gets me about this whole thing is all this bad stuff starting to happen now. And but I just don't feel like the public really makes this connection about, well, it's not going to stay as bad as it is now. It's going to get worse every year from now going forward until we completely stop burning fossil fuels and completely eliminate the fossil fuel industry, not just a little bit, but all the way gone, right? And it might even keep getting worse for some time after that, just because of lags in the earth system. So yeah, I don't know, <laughs> that's kind of a rambling answer, but I guess personally, I feel this really strong need to express this knowledge that I have and the sort of the concern that I feel based on the scientific evidence, right? And to do that in a way that actually connects with people. And so it's it's been like a dream. And we we have all these plans for where we're going in the next few months, right? So we've with the Climate Ad Project, we've we barely begun. You know, we're starting to get some interest from celebrities too. So if we start getting some of those ads out, hopefully it can help boost the project Absolutely. and boost the signal a little bit. So there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of partnerships forming. We've been talking to some really great animation studios, for example. So I think it's just going to be a, one of these projects that sort of hits a sweet spot and just gets more and more fun as it goes along. You say that it is early days, but mm -hmm. I love the ads that are highlighting the good work that your current president is doing, but at the same time, you're holding his feet to the fire. Yeah, he's, it he's seems like that's going to be a common, probably a pretty common uh, trope for ads for us going forward. <laughs> it's a good opportunity, isn't it? But Hopefully he keeps doing at least some of the good stuff. But yeah, go ahead. So the good stuff is the starting point, but you actually say in one of your ads that the US president needs to declare a climate emergency. Yeah, and even that's not going far enough, right? We Declaring a, a climate emergency is good. Acting like it's a climate emergency is even better. And this is the thing. I mean, to act like it's a climate emergency, it means you really got to start doing stuff like, say, nationalizing the fossil fuel industry, banning fracking, right? Our, our president keeps saying, you know, read my lips, basically, we're not banning fracking. He says it over and over again. Well, frankly, that's exactly the kind of thing we need to do, right? We can't say this is a climate emergency and then keep giving new permits for fracking, doing new oil and gas, and maybe even in some cases, coal exploration, and uh, keep producing more and more, right? And this is what drives Greta Thunberg crazy, is that, you know, nations keep saying, oh, it's an existential crisis, but then they keep producing and allowing fossil fuel corporations to produce more and more and more, taking us right over the edge uh, into complete climate disaster, right? So again, that's, this is the cognitive dissonance I was mentioning before, but on a national scale. It's remarkable that, that a nation could say, this is an emergency, this is an existential crisis, and then keep doubling and tripling down on precisely the stuff that's causing it. it just really makes your head explode. There's no other explanation for it. So as a, a NASA scientist, you've obviously seen the effect of what is happening to the Earth. And do you think then that every country needs to declare a climate emergency and act on it? 100%, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, if you feel like this is an emergency, and as a scientist, all I had to do was basically hear one talk. I was an astrophysicist at the time. I just had to hear one talk from a climate scientist who was talking about 
energy imbalances on the planet. So more energy is coming in than going out. And that's why the planet gets hotter. I just had to hear that and see some of the data. And I was like, holy crap, this is an emergency. I started reading papers. I'm like, wow, there's a mountain of evidence supporting this. There's projections. It looks like it's going to get really, really bad. And that made me do start to do everything I could about this, right? Because I've got kids and I love this planet. I love coral reefs. I love forests. I love rainforests. I love so much about this planet and I don't want to see a sixth mass extinction and I don't want to see billion people die and I don't want to see geopolitical destabilization in my lifetime and even worse than my kids' lifetimes. You know, I don't want to see a billion climate migrants forced to leave the tropics and go further toward the poles. So I even left astrophysics and became a climate scientist because I, for one thing, I couldn't concentrate on astrophysics anymore. And for another thing, I just wanted to just become this creature of climate action and just doing whatever I could, whatever talents I have, whatever time I have in the day to do work. I want that to go toward being as skillful and agent for creating change as I can possibly be. But for whatever reason, it doesn't seem like everyone has that response where they hear about the science, they start checking into the science themselves and verifying it. And then they're like, wow, this is really happening. So I'm going to do everything I can to make change. Even It seems like even some scientists don't do that. Did I answer your question? Yes, you did. <laughs> and it is an incredibly scary thought having to act on climate change. And so I understand that people can't act as well as you would like them to. Yeah. So there's a, a key part, I guess, is somehow letting this in emotionally and not not looking away or holding the emotions at arm's length. And I think everyone responds to that differently. So I can sort of explain a little bit how it works for me. I meditate a lot and that's what helps me not feel anxiety. So if I've done in the past where periods where I my meditation practice has gone less or sometimes gotten spotty and then the anxiety comes pouring back in and I can barely work. I can't write I can't do science, probably get really grumpy to be around. But when I meditate, I don't have to deal with the anxiety. And to me, the anxiety is the thing that really limits me. It makes me feel a lot of suffering and makes me not as effective, right? And then I have little sharp things of grief that hit me from time to time where I'll be like, I'll think about the coral reefs or I'll think about my kids' futures. And the full realization that this is really happening right now will hit me and, and I might start crying. And that lasts, it's un, really unpredictable. It maybe comes every few weeks, but it only lasts for a few minutes. And then afterwards I feel like completely cleaned out and just like ready to work harder than ever. Like it kind of refocuses me. So the grief, people talk about climate grief, like it's a bad thing. For me, it's a really focusing thing. It's not a bad thing at all. And then every now and then, like maybe every few weeks or months. And it's, it's worse when like there's heat waves, for example. So when my body's feeling climate in real time, then I can feel some panic every now and then. And sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be like, oh, I'm not doing enough. And those panic moments are short and sharp too. I don't feel like there's anything good about them the way there's something good about the grief. But I think the grief comes from love. The grief is like, it's really connected to my kids and my love for this planet. And so there's something, like I said, really kind of weirdly invigorating about it, but I don't know, connecting to reality about it. I guess the panic, I agree with Greta that I want to see more people panicking. And over the last maybe year or two, there's this vein in climate activism. You can really see it on Twitter of what I call toxic positivity, where some scientists and some climate activists seem to want to, like, they don't want people to get too scared. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is really scary. We need people to get 
more scared and we don't want them to shut down. But if they're not scared, then they are kind of like shut down all the time in some sense, because there's a dozen other things that they're going to prioritize above climate. I think there's a lot of people right now who don't genuinely accept that this is an emergency, or maybe they feel like it's still comfortably far enough in the future that it doesn't feel like it's an emergency to them yet. And so, for example, when I tweet and write articles about taking reasonable steps to fly less, I get a lot of pushback from some climate activists who fly a lot. And I really think it's because some part of their brain still hasn't accepted that this is an emergency and is still kind of clinging to that privilege of flying and the sort of pleasant sensations from flying and being going to fancy conferences and meetings and being the like guest of honor, right? There's a lot of, I think that, that privilege of flying is tied up a lot in that feeling of being important, right? Go to some climate rally or conference and be the guest of honor. But once you genuinely accept that this is an emergency, then flying less or even stopping flying not only becomes easy, it starts to feel gross to fly a lot. And, and I know that our own individual changes, there's certainly not a solution to this problem. But I'm just saying, it, once you really, really understand this is an emergency, it feels inconsistent to keep burning as much fossil fuel as you ever have. It starts to feel gross. You're like, well, burning this stuff literally kills people, literally kills forests, and that literally kills coral reefs. It's contributing to an incredible amount of suffering in the future. And if you have any sort of conscience, you don't want to contribute to that. And so if you're in a position where you feel like you're forced to, it starts to feel gross. If you drive a car that runs on gas, it's like, for me, it started to feel gross to do that. In 2010, it started feeling gross to get on an airplane that got worse and worse every time I got on it. So one time I got on an airplane in 2012 to go to a conference or a collaboration meeting for LIGO, the Gravitational Wave Observatory which was in Rome in 2012, I got in the plane and they shut the door. I almost was like, thought I need to get up and tell them to open it up and let me off. That's how bad it was. And because of that, I can't do this anymore. I can't get on a plane. And if I ever did get on a plane, for me, it would be a huge sacrifice. Like the, I, I have no nightmares about it. So, so if there was some, if I felt there was some great need that I could only serve by getting on a plane, you know, testifying in front of Congress or something like that, and they're like, you have to get here tomorrow. You can't, we can't afford to wait for you to take a train and you can't do it by Zoom. Um, I'd probably tell them no. <laughs> but if, if for some reason I was convinced it was important, it would be painful for me to be on that plane just because it's such a kind of emotional, visceral level. I feel like this is an emergency. And then that sense of emergency really changes how you, how you view solutions, right? You know, I've gone to so many kind of like local city council meetings where they're talking about, you know, electricity and um, making, for example, 100% renewable electricity, the default option. And, and it costs, you know, maybe uh, like a fraction of a cent more, you know, like a tiny amount more to do that. And you get these people coming to these meetings that are like, I'm not willing to, pen to spend a single dollar more per month on my electrical bill. And, and it's another head explosion moment for me because I'm like, if you really understood how bad this was, you would be begging them to go for 100% renewable and you'd be so happy to pay a little extra for that, right? So it's, again, it's just, if, if we see this as an emergency, either ourselves personally or our nations, we see this as an emergency, we truly get that. Then we're ready to, to do these, these kinds of solutions like nationalizing the fossil fuel industry and rationing fossil fuels. If we don't see this as an emergency, then those kinds of solutions feel 
way too radical and they feel politically infeasible. In case you missed it earlier, we're talking with Peter Kalmus, NASA scientist and climate activist. I, I think so, it's a yeah. really good point that you make there in terms of having to accept the reality of it and for people to get scared and then address their fear. And it's the same yeah. with us at the moment. We've just gone into our third lockdown with COVID-19 yeah. and we're doing it because we're fearful of the consequences if we don't. That's where climate change needs to get to. So I agree with you that the message needs to get out there that stop pussyfooting around, sugarcoating it. It has to be addressed. And how do we break through that? Because we've been saying that there's been this dialogue for a long time. We've been saying we really have to do something about this. You know, we really have to do something about this. And then another five years goes by and people keep talking like that and more time goes by and we don't seem to ever match our actions with that rhetoric. Again, it's just not totally clear to me how to break through that. I think the worsening climate disasters are starting to reach some people. I think the youth movement is starting to reach some people because I think the kids don't have the same cognitive dissonance that a lot of adults do. Because it could be as simple as that they haven't been brainwashed in the, in the sense of growing up with fossil fuels and with fossil fuels being normalized. And let's face it, if we're 40 years old or older, we grew up with this sort of sense of climate stability. And maybe it's a little hard to come out of all of that, those decades of conditioning that we have that the kids and the young people don't have. The movement always had to be led by the kids. And I've, I've known this since 2010. I used to work with kind of a proto-Greta here in Southern California, who was a high school student. He actually started being a climate activist when he was in junior high school. And he was a fantastic public speaker, completely fearless, willing to speak truth to power. He was just a little bit ahead of his time, I think, because people weren't quite as primed and concerned as they were in, in 2018. But but the kids, the kids, the youth always had to lead the way because they're the, you know, and, and frontline communities because they're the people that are going to be the most impacted by this. All right. So um you know absolutely. You know, you touched on your fear of flying before and of course Well it's it's you, more of a disgust of flying. I, I actually I have a oh, I, when I was younger, yeah, I actually got a a pilot's license to fly uh, sailplanes, you know, airplanes without motors. So I love it. I love being up there. When I was a kid, I would always, you know, sit by or a young person. I didn't fly much when I was a kid because it was a different time. We just didn't fly as much back then. But when I was young and still flying, I always sat next to the window because I loved it so much. But then, it's, yeah, it's just, and hopefully someday we can get back to flying without carbon emissions. But that seems clearly at least a decade, probably more, a few decades away. So it's, you know, it's that whether or not we ever get carbon-free planes is a little bit irrelevant to where we are right now. But anyway, yeah, go on, yeah, go on. So, Discuss so you, the flying. <laughs> you started the um, noflightclimatesite.org website. Yeah. And one of the articles that I found really compelling was a video by Hugh Hunt that calculates how much carbon dioxide a person generates on a long-haul flight, which most Australians have to do to get to Europe and America yeah. and so forth. And he found it added up to 125 20-kilogram suitcases. Yeah. And, and then th there was this visual 
of 125 suitcases full of carbon dioxide sitting there at the baggage carousel once you got off the plane and you had to get rid of it. And I thought that's that was a very powerful way of making me realise the impacts of one flight. Yeah. Other other people have kind of connected one flight to how much you know Arctic sea ice you end up melting for your portion of that flight, and um, yeah, I, you know I, I obsess a little bit about planes. They're they're only like maybe roughly three ish percent of uh, total climate impact. So you know, what, but that still puts them in the top ten of if they were if airplanes were a nation. Uh, they'd be, I can't remember exactly what it is. It's in the top 10, but it might be like number five or number six or something. It's remarkably high um, and just in terms of how much they emit because, you know, in terms of the countries of the world, you've got like a few huge countries like China, India, the United States, Russia, and then it quickly goes down from there. And, and then most nations are only, you know, responsible for a few percent. But it gets me just because it's so, to me, it's so symbolic that it's, to me, to you know, it wasn't any easier for me to give up flying in 2012 than it, I think would be for anyone else. I was flying a lot. My parents live, you know, thousands of kilometers away from me. I, you know, was felt compelled for my career to go to scientific conferences and meetings to, to progress as a, as a very early career scientist. So that was hard. You know, we loved taking vacations. We used to rent sailboats and just uh, with, with some friends and we just sail around in the Caribbean, you know, before I kind of realized how bad climate change was. So it wasn't, and I don't think it was any easier for me to give, to give up flying than most people, but I could do it pretty easily because it seems like a pretty, it, it's, you know, it's not really something we need to do. It's just something that we want to do and that we're so accustomed to doing that maybe it feels like we need to do. And if we're not willing to give up flying, then it just, to me, it seems like it's one of the first things we would give up if we really wanted to treat this like an emergency. So for me, it's like a it's like a litmus test. Once we really start reducing flying and taking that seriously, and forget with all the you know stop with all the bullshit offsets, that'll be to me a signal that we're really starting to take this seriously. Thanks so much for your time today, Peter. We've been speaking to Peter Kalmus, NASA scientist and climate activist. Doesn't he have an incredible energy and drive? So don't forget to listen to the second part next week. As I mentioned earlier, this is our second last show. We've had a great time talking with people involved in the evolution of solutions to the wicked problem of climate change. Isn't it amazing to see how much has changed in this space in the last decade? If you're interested in finding out about what's going to happen in the future for us, send us an email at climateinsiders at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you and let us know of any ideas that you may have. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studio of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. Thank you for listening to us and supporting us all this time. I hope you can tune in to the last show next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. 
the market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.